Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. On September 19, 1988, American diver Greg Louganis made a mistake. It was day three of the Summer Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea, and Louganis was about to perform his ninth qualifying dive for the finals, a reverse two-and-a-half somersault pike. He stepped up to the board and launched himself into the air, his body gracefully flying straight up. But when Louganis began to spin himself backward, his head slammed into the diving board. The sound echoed throughout the arena, and there was an audible gasp from the audience as Luganus hit the water. When he eventually resurfaced, Greg was holding his head in his hand. And when he got out of the pool, his white bathing suit was stained with blood. Greg Luganus was, and some say still is, the greatest diver to ever live. When he was 16 years old, he competed in his first Olympic Games and won silver in the 10-meter platform. In 1982, he made history as the first diver ever to be awarded a perfect 10 from all seven judges at the World Aquatic Championships. And he was the first and only man to win two consecutive Olympic gold medals in both the platform and springboard events. And yet, despite all these accomplishments, many people still define Luganus by that one dive in 1988, the bump heard around the world. A moment that was at first horrific, Then, a symbol of perseverance and strength. And finally, years later, a point of controversy during a time of mass hysteria. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. Now, we've already covered Greg Louganis' story in a previous episode, but because he's such a fascinating character, we wanted to give you a chance to hear more about him. This episode is an exclusive and raw version of my conversation with Louganis. This unaired tape has details about his early years in training, how he ended up moving on from and even forgiving his abusive ex-boyfriend, and more about his HIV diagnosis and how he handled such a difficult time in his life. Greg, it's a huge honor, truly. To be sitting here virtually with you is is just extremely surreal. And I just, you know, I'm super appreciative that, that you said yes. Sure, thank you. So, you know, before we get in, 
to the story and to the content, I noticed on your Instagram that you talk a lot about meditation. Yeah, meditation has been been such a huge part of my success, really. Yeah, absolutely. I started meditating when I got sober. Yeah. And to also manage the interior voice, the critical interior voice, right? How long ago? Uh, Four years. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, I'm uh, 13 years sober. You are? Yeah, yeah. Do you... Are you like AA 12 steps over? I, I went through AA. You know, yeah. I, I did do that. That was very key and necessary, I felt, you know, to learn the steps and, and practice them. Um, I have an incredible sponsor who's my yoga instructor. Amazing. Yeah. So that's, that is my sobriety is my yoga practice. That's another thing that helped me so much in early sobriety is yoga and then a breathwork practice. Yeah. Man, do I wish I would have... had these tools early on as a young athlete. That high level, you know, competition, all all of that, that can also be a bit of an addiction too, you know, because it can be, you know, for me, it was a safe place. It was a safe to hide. It's where I could focus my energy, you know, in, in a relatively safe way. Absolutely. So let's just kind of go back a little bit, you know, struggle for you presented right, right from the get go. You were born to teenage parents who put you up for adoption. You spent some time in foster care. Yep. And then Francis and Peter Luganis adopted you. Could you talk a little bit about what that was like when you realized that you were adopted and, and kind of who Francis and Peter Luganis were? I, I went right into foster care when I was born. And then, you know, at nine months, I was adopted by Peter and Francis. They, they were very upfront about both my sister and I being adopted. So it, it wasn't new news. It wasn't like, uh, you know, we were in one of those, oh, my God, you know, moments. I just always knew. But kind of the residual that came with that was a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also went through a bit of struggle with allowing to be loved. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I went through a really bad, rebellious stage. I spent my 13th birthday in juvenile hall. I was just such a brat. I mean, I, I, I was horrible. <laughs> my poor mom. Um, I was but, too. Uh, you were too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least we can, oh, yeah. we can admit that and then we can make our amends, right? That's for sure. Yep. That living of amends. After I got released from juvenile hall, then I had to come right home after school and help mom with the chores. I, I love shocking my mom. So I tell her a dirty joke or something like that. <laughs> really kind of challenge her. And then she'd come back with an even dirtier joke. You know, she was so cool with all of that. And I realized, oh my God, you know, she loves me unconditionally. And so that was a, an incredible awakening for me. Tell me about your dad, your adopted father. Well, we had a challenging relationship. You know, looking at his history, his both of his parents died when he was quite young. So he really didn't have role models to be a parent. It was, you know, it was new territory for him. Also, <laughs> I don't think either one of my parents were ready to adopt me. You know, Greg Lugain is the first 
done, right? You know, that's that's an awful lot to contend with, right? Yeah. So I, I don't think they were prepared for that. I mean, who can prepare for that, right? And also, you know, to be raising a gay son, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm really grateful that uh, I took care of my dad the last six weeks of his life. He died of cancer. You know, that whole year when he was diagnosed with cancer, it was a real healing time because that's when I came out to him about my HIV status. And then it became a crusade for life and quality of life. And so we had very meaningful conversations. We were able to heal a lot of old wounds and and also understand that a lot of what he did was the only way that he could express love, you know, because that's all he knew. That's, um, it's a little emotional for me. That was, that's just a beautiful story. And, and, um, I, I had a really tough relationship with my dad too. And there was definitely a moment where we both got very candid and I, and I saw kind of, you know, what you saw, which is this was a young man trying to raise kids, having no idea what he was doing. And, and it was, you know, just this very healing moment. And and I'm so happy that you got to have that sort of conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, you got on a diving board pretty young. Yeah, I, um, I was in acrobatics and dance when I was a year and a half. I got into gymnastics, which was my first love. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make the Olympic team in gymnastics. Uh, that was when I was about seven. I started diving when I was about eight because we had a pool built in our backyard and it had a diving board. And I started trying some of my gymnastics stunts off the diving board at home. And my mom said, oh, we're going to get you lessons. I don't want you to kill yourself. So we'll get you lessons. <laughs> And uh, first day after the lessons, my coach, the coach said, oh, will you, will you join the club team? And I'm like, oh, I'll think about it. You know, because I was doing dance and acrobatics and gymnastics. Like, what, I'm going to dive into all this? You know, it was kind of crazy. And then a year later, I was world champion for my age group. And then three years after that, I was on my first Olympic team. So you are world champion in in Guayaquil. And this is this is after, you know, the Moscow Olympics. I mean, I made that Olympic team right. and we didn't go. And so what happened was I we're in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Each diver is introduced from what country, their highest achievement. And Alexander Portinov was introduced from the Soviet Union at that time. It was the Soviet Union. Uh, Olympic gold medalist, 1980. And then I was introduced, Greg Louganis, United States, Olympic silver medalist, 1976. And I just kind of looked over at Alexander and I'm thinking in my head, you're an Olympic gold medalist because I wasn't there. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I have something to prove here. And so we went through the competition And, uh, you know, I was the last diver and I came down to the last dive. You know, I was feeling good. You know, my my coach, Ron O'Brien, his his response to me, which was I knew that everything was going well. He'd just say, keep just keep dancing, just keep dancing. So things are going going well. And I'm on the three meter springboard and I set the board and they announced my dive. And I look at the scoreboard to make sure that the dive number matches the dive. And I see that my score flashing. So I didn't have to do my last dive 
to win. I had already won. What? Yeah. And so then that's when I realized that, wow, I, you know, I deserve to be here on the world stage competing with all of these other countries. Can we break down a dive? Sure. You're standing on like a, the top of a three-story building, basically. Yeah. So, you know, standing 33 feet above the water, you're hitting the water at 35 miles per hour, approximately. And basically, what when you're diving from a 10-meter platform, you're just heaving your body into the air. And a dive takes less than three seconds. So you have less than three seconds to do all of these spins and twists and maneuvers. And then line your body up vertically, you know, to the water. And when you hit the water at that speed, even if you're going straight up and down, it's an isometric stretch. So the impact on your shoulders and wrists is, is pretty intense. You're breaking the surface of the water with your hands. So you break the surface. What you're doing is you're creating a bubble. And then you want to get your your body into that bubble before it closes up. And that's how you get in without a splash. Wow. Yeah. So then you fall into that bubble and then you feel the water kind of close up around you. And when you enter the water, it's like silence. It's just this peaceful, serene silence. Something that occurred to me when I was doing all this research is fear has to be a, a big part of this sport. Um, I mean, the reverse triple. Reverse three and a half. When you yes. first started competing that, it was just like you and one other person and that other diver performed it and, and died, right? Performing it. He hit his head. Yeah, when we were at the World University Games, Sergei Shalabashvili, he was doing reverse three and a half, and he did hit his head on the on the platform, and he was in a coma. And then I think less than a week later, he passed, and we were the only two divers doing that dive at that at that time. Right. So that was really challenging for me because I felt I felt responsible. You know, because I felt like, really? I was, yeah, I felt these, I was pushing these kids to do these more difficult dives to be able to compete with me. And so what I did is I got a videotape of the, uh, of that dive and I played it over and over and over again because I wanted to understand what he did wrong to make mm -hmm. sure that it, I felt like it was my responsibility to never allow that to happen to me. So many people, when they feel fear, they want to run, but instead you just go right into it. I mean, you, you analyzed all the tapes and you figured out how you could empower yourself. And, and, you know, I just, I, I find that really fascinating and would love to hear a little bit more about that intimacy with fear and walking through it like that. Well, fear is a part of life. Mm -hmm. you know, fear is a part of life. I mean, we're walking through, you know, challenges all the time. You know, we may not recognize it. You know, it may, we may not celebrate those little moments, which we should, mm -hmm. you know, because that is stepping through fear. And, and also fear is uh, excitement minus the breath. 
Wow. So if you add breath, if you add breath to that fear, it transforms into excitement, you know, uh, yes. an elevated awareness, right? Yes. So then it's like, oh, okay. And then, and then you walk through that. And how you walk through that is with your breath. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Okay, so you started dating this guy. His name was Jim. He was your boyfriend. He became your manager. From what I have read, he sounds... He was disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't very kind to you a lot of times. And you were with him for quite a while, right? Yeah, I think six years. And, and also, I, I, I also recognize my part in it, too. At that time, I didn't want to have to be responsible, you know, so mm -hmm. I gave my my control to somebody else, because then I didn't have to take responsibility. It wasn't my fault. Yeah, so I recognize that now. And yeah, it was abusive. Um, he raped me in the first year that we were seeing each other. And I stayed, you know, <laughs> I chose to stay. Mm -hmm. Have you forgiven him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, because, because, you know, my forgiveness is for me. You know, when we, when we forgive somebody, it's not for the other person. It's for our own peace of mind. Yeah, you have to get to that place of forgiveness to really thrive. So powerful. He was diagnosed when we were together. Right. I was having some issues with my ear and I went into the doctor and I said, oh, I want to do an HIV test anonymously. And so um, he he did that because I wanted to make sure that I was in, um, you know, I was in good health to get through the Olympic trials and, and all of that. Because at that time in 88, we thought HIV AIDS was a death sentence. Yeah. But yeah, it's like get, get your get your affairs in order and all that. And 
Jim and I both got our, our diagnosis. He was having a difficult time breathing. As it turned out, he had pneumocystis pneumonia. And so um, he was diagnosed with, uh, with AIDS. And, um, and then I was diagnosed um, HIV positive. And actually, a lot of people like to blame Jim for my HIV status, but I don't. I don't mm-hmm. blame him at all because my, uh, my partner before Jim, he passed of HIV AIDS. So chances are I was probably positive. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was probably positive before Jim and I got together. Um, you know, but, you know, it, it, I so that I don't blame. I, I There's no blame. Uh-huh. There's no blame. It just is. <laughs> so it's six months before the 88 Olympics. You get this diagnosis. What made you decide to compete in 88? Well, my cousin, my doctor, he said, you know, we... Mm-hmm. Don't know how long you've been uh, HIV positive. You know, you've been training for the Olympics and training would be the healthiest thing for you. And so, you know, so that's when and it it was so much easier to focus on the diving, which I understood. And it gave me a positive focus. Mm -hmm. Who'd you tell? Uh, the only ones that there weren't many people who knew. Um, I didn't even want to tell my coach, Ron O'Brien. Because I was afraid the Chinese had caught up to me by that time in okay. 88. And so I, I, I knew I had to be in the best shape that I possibly could be. Um, I knew that I was holding on by the skin of my teeth. And so I didn't want him taking it easy on me, you know, thinking that, oh, you have a compromised, you have a compromised immune system. So maybe I might go easy on him. And what did Ron say? You know, he turned to me and said, Greg, I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. We'll get through this together. Um, Because also, too, I mean, we were going to Seoul, Korea. And so, you know, if my HIV status had been known, I wouldn't have been allowed into the country. Right. During that time, one in seven people thought that people with HIV should be tattooed and 51% thought that they should be in quarantine. Just to give some context of how crazy the world was at that time around this diagnosis. So so you tell Ron O'Brien, you're in Korea, you get up to take your first dive. And did you know, like right from the get-go that you were off? Yeah, yeah. Um... As I was taking off the board on my reverse two and a half pike, I, I knew I was, I, I stood it up a little straight. And so I knew I was going to be close to the board. But usually when you mm-hmm. do something like that, you have to worry about hitting your hands or your, you know, it, it's your hands or arms that's going to hit the board. And I thought I was well past the board. And then I heard this big hollow thud. And I, I was like, what was that? And I go crashing in the water and then I crashing in the water. I was like, shit, that was my head. Yeah. And so my, my first emotion was I, I was embarrassed. That was your first emotion. Yeah. I mean, I was embarrassed. I mean, I, you know, I was like, okay, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm supposed to be a pretty good diver. And I go and hit my head board and I'm thinking, how can I get out of this pool without anybody seeing me? And the entire world's watching, right? Yeah. No shot on that. <laughs> it's like, okay. No, you know, it, that's, that's not happening. And so, um, 
I, I, I was so confused. I didn't want anybody touching it because I was afraid if I'm bleeding, I didn't know if I was bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just didn't want anybody touching, you know, the blood. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, so then I made my way over to my coach, Ron O'Brien, and, um, you know, he pulled me into a, a side room and, you know, he asked me, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, it was like, I'm out of the competition. I thought I was out of the competition because I did see some zeros. I mean, I didn't fail the dive, but, you know, I, I, did, I did get a few zeros because the judges couldn't watch. They were turning away and they didn't see the dive. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I thought I was totally out of the competition. And um, he came back and he said, no, you're, you know, you're Still in there. Yeah. And he said, but you have to complete, complete your last two dives. And so that's when I kind of turned to him, kind of a knee jerk response. And I said, Ron, we've worked too long and hard to get here. And I don't want to give up without a fight. I said, okay. So doctor came in, sewed me up, um, Dr. James Puffer and Dr. Ben Rubin. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, uh, Ron said, um, once we decided I was, you know, I was going to continue, I had two more dives. I said, okay, come on, let's take a walk. And so Ron was, he, he was so funny, you know, he was like, okay, you know, hockey players, they get 30 stitches and get back on the ice. You got five stitches in your head. It's nothing, you know, and we were just laughing, you know, and then, um, you know, we were just kind of, kind of joking around. You know, the other thing is, you know, I think there was a little blood in my bathing suit and there was another pool and said, you know, jump in the pool, get the you know blood out of my, mm-hmm. it was a white bathing suit. You know, in, in a moment like that, you do something like that. It just totally blows out your confidence. Yeah. I mean, my confidence was, you know, you know, kind of on the negative range. And Ron O'Brien, he, he said, look, I know you don't believe in yourself, but believe in me because I believe in you. So that I, 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 I could put that trust and faith in him and trust that with, you know, that love and respect that I had for him, you know, to get on that, on the diving board. And I remember I set the fulcrum, they announced the dive, Greg Luganis, United States, reverse one and a half or three and a half twists. And I could hear a gasp from the audience because they knew I was going in the same direction. And so I heard this audible gasp and I took a deep breath and patted my chest like my heart was beating outside my chest. And then the people who saw that chuckled, they were like, you know, they go, Oh my God, he's afraid too. You know, and I was thinking, Oh my God. And I started laughing and I was like, Oh my God, they're afraid for me. I'm afraid for me. And you know, <laughs> it was just, you know, the players like, Oh my God. You know, and I realized, Oh, these people want to see me succeed. And, yeah. and, and then I just had to let that go. And it's like, okay, you know what? You know, it'll be what it'll be. I it was the Olympics. I couldn't hold back. You know, I had to go for it, and so that's what I did. And it was just like kind of a surrender moment. You know, it's like you know, whatever happens, going to happen. And I did the dive, 
And, um, and it was funny. It was the highest growing dive of the Olympics. And then I go to my coach and, you know, he, 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 he said, he said, nice dive. And then he hits me on the shoulder and said, it's still too close. I'm like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so then on my, so then on my last dive is reverse three and a half tuck, which is my most difficult reverse. And it's still going in the same direction. He said, jump it out. It's like, okay, I'm jumping it out. <laughs> when, when you and Ron hugged each other after that dive, I mean, I just, I still watch it and cry. It's, it's just so powerful knowing what the two of you have been through and, and how much he had your back. And that was my last dive, my, my career. That was your last dive. So you retire after that dive. You're the best diver to ever live. Are, are, are you beloved? Are you embraced in the diving community? Do you have endorsements? I mean, what, what does that picture look like? It's weird. You know, jealousy is a strange thing. It is. Jealousy is a really, really strange thing. So, yeah, was I embraced by U.S. diving? No. Right. No. No, I mean, I think they were happy to see me go I, and, and probably regret that I had as many records as I have, I've had, you know, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. They weren't, they weren't kind to myself or then they weren't kind to my coach, Ron O'Brien. They weren't kind to Ron either. That's yeah, so crazy. No. Was there a come down? Was there a grief period? It, it was it was a whole lot of mixture of different things. You know, I retired from my sport, which, you know, when you retire from a sport, if you're an elite athlete, you know, it, it's like the loss of a part of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also was uh, getting untangled from uh, from an abusive relationship, so that was going on. Mm-hmm. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, it, it, it was it was a lot of things. So, you know, I didn't have I don't think I had the, the typical grieving process for my sport because it was kind of a mixture of all these other different things that I needed to take care of. That makes sense. So you you had come out to your family at this point. Um, and to your close friends, but you hadn't come out to the world, right? Right. I came out to um, came out to my mom at, in '83. I was 23. Um, okay. it, it was a breakup from you know from an ex. We, we that that relationship was like one of those young relationships that you have. It's very passionate. It's like it's like fireworks, or we're throwing throwing things at each other. You know, it was just crazy <laughs> when we finally broke up. It was I my mom helped me gather up my things and uh and then i turned her and i said you know mom kevin and i were more than just roommates we we were lovers and mm-hmm. she goes i know son what's for dinner <laughs> i love you know? and i'm like what's for dinner like aren't you gonna smack me aren't you gonna you know like throw something at me or you know get it right because I thought if my parents knew that I was gay, oh my mm-hmm. God, the earth was going to you know, open up and swallow me whole. Yeah. So yeah. you could have just gone away, been known as, to this day, the best diver in the world, you know, revered, respected, in an international heartthrob, but you decided to, to come out not only about 
the fact that you're gay, but the fact that you're HIV positive in, was that in 95? That was in 95. Uh, You know, going through the detanglement with Jim, um, you know, because he was threatening to, you know, make my HIV status, you know, holding that over my head. Um, The thought was, that came to mind was the truth shall, shall set you free. And then he passed in 90, I think it was 90. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of years, you know, he, he passed. And then my dad passed in 91. And so then it was in 90, 93, I was cast in Jeffrey, the play. Right. Jeffrey in New York. And I played Darius who was out in gay pride marches and out and proud and on TV (laughs) and um, (laughs) in the play. And then, um, and he also dies of complications with AIDS. So night after night, I'm playing this character, able to live out my fantasies, but also face my fears. You know, because each night I, you know, march in a parade and each night I die. Wow. And but but I but I felt that Darius, his his spirit comes back and I felt delivered the most poignant message to the lead character, Jeffrey. It's when he turns to Jeffrey as his spirit saying, Jeffrey, hate AIDS, not life. Mm. And so that is something mm. that I really took to heart. And so night after night, I, I went to a friend of mine when I was almost through with the, with the run or maybe halfway through the run of um, my, my involvement with Jeffrey in New York. Um, I said, uh, you know, I, I want to write a book. Mm. I felt at that time, I felt like I was living on an island with barely a phone for communication to the outside world, because that's what secrets do to you. They isolate, they keep you apart from everybody. And so I felt that if I'm going through this, I'm not the only person that's HIV positive living with this secret. I'm sure that other people are out there. They just are terrified like I was. For sure. Yeah. But this was a tremendous risk. I mean, we were not a, a society that was yet favorable in approaching both HIV and being out. I mean, this was a, a huge risk, especially because you were going to have to confront this information that you had HIV and blood in the pool and all, all these different things and were a society just driven by fear around this thing. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? What did you think the outcome would be? I didn't know what the outcome would be. I, I didn't. You know, I felt like, you know, I, I had to get right with, 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 all the, with all the right people, right? So yeah. I came out to my mother about my HIV status on my 33rd birthday because I thought I was saying goodbye to everybody because I was losing weight. I thought I was wasting and we couldn't figure out what was going on. So I thought I was saying goodbye to everybody. Mm. And then we found out that I had a fungal infection in my colon and got the right 
medications to take care of that. And I was going to live, you know, so before the book came out, I was, you know, the book was coming out in 95 and I knew what was going to be in the book in 94. So I reached out to Dr. James Puffer mm-hmm. and, you know, I told him about my HIV status, you know, at that time so that he could get tested. I hadn't realized that Dr. Ben Rubin had been there because when my head was being sewn up, I'm like face down and and I didn't know who was messing with the top of my head. Dr. Ben Rubin, I didn't realize that he was there, but I but I did know Jim was there. And so I reached out to Jim to make sure he was okay and he got tested and everything was good. So I was good with the people that I felt it was important. Right. Whatever happened beyond that, I had absolutely no control. I felt like I was sharing my weaknesses, you know, my sexual identity, my getting out of an abusive relationship, my HIV status, you know, all of these things that I, I perceived as weak. What I realized on the book tour is when I was on book tour and thousands of people are showing up you know, to share their stories with me. Yes, yes. To, you know, just, I I realized that by sharing my perceived weaknesses, I was actually sharing my strength. No question. My co-author, Eric Marcus, and I were on on the tour. And, I mean, we were, (laughs) you know, every fifth person who come through who came through the line i mean we would be in tears because they'd share a story oh my my god you know but it's it's so fascinating because in the tears there's so much healing did you finally feel at peace after this book tour and after um getting honest and and being able to be yourself i mean did that did that give you peace inside Yes, definitely. Because then it was a layer of of who I was that I didn't have to hide anymore. Greg, I could talk to you for like 10 hours. I've I've so enjoyed researching your life and and I just at every turn I've just been amazed. You are such a powerhouse and 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 so kind and and I just I'm I'm so overly grateful that that I got the opportunity to do this with you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And there you have it. An extended version of my conversation with five-time Olympic medalist Greg Luganis. We live in a time where we are largely expected as human beings to not make mistakes. And this is a very unsustainable perspective. We are human beings and I think we're here to grow. And I think Greg is a beautiful example of that. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Jenner Pasqua and Marcy Thompson with support from Mike Quigley and Ben Branstein. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Azenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched, 
you may remember hammer thrower Gwen Berry from a few episodes ago. We talked about how the Olympic Committee put her on probation for raising her fist during the Star Spangled Banner. We'll share my extended conversation with Gwen about activism, motherhood, and what it means to her to be a black woman and an athlete in the United States. It's just like, it doesn't matter how good somebody is, how much somebody works hard to get to where they're supposed to be. There's always people who think that because of how somebody looks or how somebody fits into society, that they should be the one to be there and not you. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. I was shocked, you know. They were always such a good team. So successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.